Do you schedule and host events in the Jewish community? Conferences, webinars, local events? Please consider adding your events to Jcast Network's newest project, the Jewish Communal Events Calendar. Don't schedule events, but know someone who does? Invite them to add their events. If we all work together, we can create another wonderful resource for the Jewish community. Visit our calendar and post your events at jcastnetwork.org slash jcpc. You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit mikenopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. In uh, modern scientifically advanced days, with the state of Israel and the fraught but materially successful diaspora, the people of Israel will sing many songs. And, and, and I just want to add that in addition to all of the things that he mentioned as challenges to, uh, to, to uh, classical faith, let's call it, uh, two of the uh, major challenges to classical faith, I think, uh, that need to be grappled with in order to have a coherent theology um, are the Holocaust and the advent of the state of Israel. How do those play into your, your theological system right? um, as a Jewish person? Um, if you're not a Jewish person, you have other things uh, in addition to that, right? How do you grapple with the atomic bomb uh, in, uh, in, in, uh, or in the contemporary age, right? Those are all, if, if, uh, if you're un- trying to understand God, those are all relevant and crucial questions. Um, some will be? Some will be discordant. Many will not harmonize easily with the others. We may not agree on the content of the, me- on the, content of the message. How wonderful, um, however, to be reminded that we are the bearers of an ancient and essential message. How necessary the struggle to give voice to that message. In that struggle is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, good. Now let's flip the page. We're gonna. This is a, um, a, an attempt to uh, to uh, talk about what does the process of studying theology look like, and and because of time, I'm just gonna sort of fly through this one real quickly. So, a, theolo- a theologian is entrusted with the task of theorizing on the nature of God. Unlike the academic studying ancient religion, the theologian, as my teacher Lu- Rabbi Louis Jacobs taught, must ask what it is that one can believe today. There is a deeply personal element to theology in that it both emerges out of our experiences and seeks to speak to them. I think that that hits on what you're saying, David, right? That theology should be coherent with our own internal experience of God. But but the work of theology is to go beyond that. The theologian's task is made more difficult in the realization that knowledge of God is necessarily beyond the capacity of human discourse. The non-fundamentalist theologian seeks to describe what she or he knows from the start cannot be described. Theological integrity thus also requires humility. The Jewish theologian is faced with the additional task of constructing a theology emergent from and tethered to Jewish sources, people, and concerns. Because we're Jewish theologians, most of us probably want something that, uh, that we could reasonably call Jewish. Right, that that you know that won't take us to say that uh, that uh, you, you know what we actually all of a sudden discovered that really there is a Trinity. Right, we're not going to likely be doing that. Right, what we're going to be doing is saying, well, here's what we know of the world. Here's our own internal experience of God. Here's what our 
texts say, and here's what our tradition says, how can I harmonize that into something that still feels uh, true, authentic, and Jewish? Um, Jewish theology must be identifiable with Jewish thinkers of the past and also must find traction with Jews of the present. A theology that fails to meet the first criterion, while potentially interesting, risks faddishness and cannot rightfully claim to be Jewish. A theology that doesn't meet the second criterion, while claiming authenticity, is irrelevant. Finally, the Jewish theologian builds on a tradition that is neither univocal nor systematic. That goes to the the point again that we were making uh, just a few moments ago. With the above considerations in mind, you face the altogether reasonable question of how Jewish theology may be read and evaluated. If Jewish theology is internally pluralistic, deeply personal, and necessarily incomplete, then how do you distinguish good theology from bad Jewish theology? To answer this question, I recommend the standards proposed by my teacher, Dr. Byron Sherwin. Sherwin offers the following four criteria by which to measure Jewish or any theology. Authenticity, coherence, contemporaneity, and communal acceptance. And I'm actually going to hand you out uh, in each class, I'll hand out a new one of these, a sheet that um, has uh, a place where you can evaluate each of the things that we're going to look at by their authenticity, coherence, contemporaneity, and communal acceptance. What that means, authenticity, is uh, the nature and use of sources consulted and on the faith commitment of the individual consulting them. Right? In other words, like, like does the, is this rooted in Jewish tradition or not? Right? Can you reasonably say that it's Jewish? Coherence relates to the cohesion, clarity, and communicability of a formulated theological perspective, um, right? So, is it internally consistent? Um, does, it, does it make logical sense? Um, that sort of thing. Contemporaneity pertains to the successful application of past traditions to present situations, right? So, uh, a theology, however beautiful and well-written and well-reasoned it is, that cannot account for... Uh, what happened in the Holocaust um, is not a useful theology in our time. Um, there may be different ways of grappling with what happens in the, in the Holocaust, but if, but if it doesn't strike you as, uh, as, as meaningfully addressing that serious historical catastrophe, then it is not a useful theology for our time. Communal acceptance refers to the ratific- communal acceptance, excuse me, refers to the ratification of theological posture by committed members of a specific faith community. In other words, um, not only do I like this uh, approach to God, but do I think that Jews, broadly speaking, would be willing to accept this view of God? Right, and that's another way of evaluating it. And the other, um, so you'll, I'll hand this out on the other sheets in the packet. Or is it one of the uh, um, essays that we'll be looking at. So you have uh, authenticity, coherence, contemporaneity, communal acceptance at the bottom. At the top, you have uh, blocks for creation, revelation, redemption, God, Torah, and Israel, which are more or less the general categories within, subcategories within uh, theology. What does this person say? Or if we're not reading what they're directly saying about creation, what would they say, do I think, about how creation happened? What do they say or would they say about revelation, right? How did, how did the Torah come to be? Um, uh, et cetera, and so on. You guys follow what I'm saying there? Okay. Um, all right, so I'm going to hand these out.
And I'm also going to have a pen. You know what? All right, I'm not going to, in the interest of time, um, yeah, no, we have to, okay. If we, if we don't get to, I have two orthodox theologians tonight, uh, if we only get to one, then I'll save the other for, uh, for next time, okay? So I'm going to hand out uh, this, no, actually I need to copy. Okay, what we're going to be looking at first is uh, uh, the person that I think could rightly be called the founder, the founding father of modern orthodoxy, uh, a rabbi named Sanson Raphael Hirsch, um, who was a rabbi in Germany in the uh, 19th century. Many people are surprised to learn that uh, orthodoxy is not the way uh, Jews have always been Jewish, uh, but rather a modern ideological uh, Jewish movement that emerged in response to Reform Judaism. Um, uh, uh, they, uh, uh, modern Orthodox uh, um, practitioners sometimes argue that that modern ideological response to Reform Judaism was just a formal crystallization of what Jews had always been doing, and so therefore modern orthodoxy is still what Jews has always, had always been doing. Um, that's not exactly true. Um, yeah? They would not be surprised if they took your class on Jewish history. That's true. They, they would not be surprised. Um, well, they would be surprised when they took that class. They wouldn't be surprised about me saying it now. Um, all right. Everybody have copies of this? Okay. So, uh, Hirsch wrote um, two major works. One, uh, uh, which I think is uh, uh, very dense and very hard to get through, called Choreb, uh, and, uh, which is really sort of his magnum opus. And then this one, which is called uh, The Nineteen Letters, um, which is a uh, fictionalized uh, series of letters that, uh, that Hirsch, uh, who wrote under a pseudonym, uh, was sending to a fictionalized person who was uh, considering uh, being part of the reform movement, right? And so arguing uh, for Hirsch's perspective of Judaism against the uh, uh, emerging reform movement, okay? All right, so uh, this is letter number three in that, in that book, right? And, uh, and, and just in the interest of time and maybe for inflection, I'm, I'm going to read this, but again, we're, we're looking here for um, what this person says or might say about creation, revelation, redemption, God, Torah, and Israel. Uh, Israel being the people of Israel, not, uh, uh, not necessarily the state of Israel. And we're going to evaluate it based on authenticity, coherence, contemporaneity, and communal acceptance. Um, okay. So I, I marked off where I want to start here. Um, Israel, history, mankind, the world. They all can only be comprehended through God, the creator, as a work of art is only then perfectly understood when we have an insight into the plans of the master. And to our eye, God reveals himself only in his works. Thus the Torah, the divine book of the law, leads through the concept of Israel and Israel's duties to the knowledge of God, the world, the missions of mankind, and history. 
flip to the next page. The Torah summons us to view heaven and earth and speaks from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven, everything which thou seest existing. When it came into existence, Rishit bara Elohim. In its beginning, God was active as its creator. Seest thou the heaven in its eternally silent, unchanging course, bearer of light and heat and all the motive forces of our earth, supporter of the earth world? Seest thou it with its millions of starry worlds, or resplendent with the refulgence of the magnificently radiant sunball, or the earth the swift runner with its eternal circles of originating and passing away, of blooming and withering, of life and death, eternally struggling from ceasing, fading, and death to ever new existence, bloom and life, dost thou see it with its millions of productions, stones, plants, animals, all of which it produces, nourishes, and again takes back into its bosom? Dost thou see the light, the messenger of heaven to earth, which coaxes all to life and leads from life? through which thou seest everything which is, and everything arrays itself for thee in resplendent colors. Dost thou see the firmament spread out around the earth, which receives the ray of light and alters it to suit the necessity of the earth, in which the clouds move and water the parched earth, the thirsty grasses, the beasts, and men? Seest thou the universal ocean, with all-encompassing arm of flood embracing the earth, or the springs, which burst forth from the fissures of the rocks and flow on as rivulets, brooks, and mighty rivers? Dost thou rejoice in the firm surface of the earth upon which thou walkest safe and secure together with thy dear ones? Hast thou pleasure in its meadowy expanse or its leafy trees or in all the living things which stir so animatedly in the waters and in the air or dwell with thee on earth? Dost thou see sun, moon, and stars, which from their celestial positions above thee regulate the times of day and month and the seasons of the year, and determine the recurring periods of waking and sleep, of rise and fall, of bloom and decay on earth? One God exists. One omnipotent creator, proclaims the Torah. Through his word, all which is was created. Heaven and earth are his work. His are light and air, sea and dry land. His, plants and fishes, birds, insects, and all beasts. His creation, sun, moon, and stars. He spake vayahi, and it was. Behold now, separately, each created... Actually, let me pause there. Okay, so how would you characterize what Hirsch is saying so far? Okay, can you say more about that? What does that mean? There's a connection between everything that exists yeah. with each other, okay? Uh, describe, can, can you describe the world that Hirsch describes? How, what does it look like? What does it feel like to you? Very orderly. Very orderly. Very harmonious. In a, in a changing and cyclic fashion. Mm-hmm. It reminds me a little bit of Kohala. I mean, Yeah, Gary. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the, it's it's all regarding you know the, the structure, the order, the order and, and structure of nature that it is the way it is. You know that there is order and not disorder. Right. 
Right. That things actually work. Right. You know, and, and do what they're supposed to do. Right. That that it, that's the it's this intricately functioning, you know, uh, extraordinarily majestic. Uh, world and universe in which we uh, in, in which we live um, that uh, that we, so that seems to imply what about God? He had a plan. God had a plan. Okay. What else? Anything else? People messed up. Oh, we haven't gotten to people yet, um, uh, but that's an interesting one. I mean, he explicitly said, "Hey, so you can only see God." should be lost, right? Even for this uh, um, uh, orthodox thinker, right? Founding father of modern orthodoxy, um, his argument for God is based not on the authenticity or authority of text, even though he cites text, he's basing it on a more uh, phenomenological argument, an experiential argument, right? You can know God exists, because of the intricacy and majesty of the world, the harmony of nature, uh, how, how everything functions the way it's supposed to function and, uh, and, and, and connects with everything else, right? Um, there, there appears to be an artistry at work in, uh, in, in our world and in the cosmos uh, that, um, that, that makes it hard to believe that all of this is accidental, right? Um, yeah, you can, he can make that entire argument without quoting one scriptural verse. Right? He happens to quote scriptural verses, but only really to support that uh, um, uh, experiential argument. Great. All right, let's go on a little bit more. Uh, Behold now separately each created thing, from the blade of grass to the vast sunball, uh, each with its special purpose, and each specially adapted in its form and matter for that purpose. The same almighty wisdom formed and designated uh, 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 each for its special purpose. This divine wisdom proclaimed to the light, serve the day. To the darkness, serve the night. To the firmament, be the heaven over the earth. To the gathering of the waters, be thou the ocean. To the dry substance, become earth, scene of life and development. To the plant, to the planets, be ye rulers of the seasons. It determined the purpose, and according to the purpose, it ordained for its object matter, form, force and dimensions. I, I, I also want to point out there that he uh, um, uh, uh, makes connections and evokes imagery uh, connecting it to uh, biblical verses that are not inherent in the biblical text itself. Right. So just as one example, uh, the, the biblical text does not mention other planets. 
right? But living in the 19th century, you know, he's living in a post-Copernican world in which there are other planets, and he's got to account for them, right? Um, and so he uh, adapts um, a, 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 the biblical idea, be rulers of the seasons, relating to the moon, etc., right, uh, for that purpose. It determined the purpose, and according to the purpose, uh, it, but, but he's got to grapple with that idea, right? So what do you do in a, in a, uh, when, uh, according to the biblical text, it looks like what God created was an earth that was the center of the whole cosmos, maybe really the only thing that existed in the cosmos with the sun and moon and stars all kind of being attached to the, to the earth, right? Which is, if you, if you look at, you know, uh, ancient and medieval conceptions of the cosmos, that was more or less how it was conceived. Right, um, so he's living in a world where that's no longer true, which was a radical transformation in religion at the time. How do you how, how do you understand your tradition um, and your sacred uh, literature when your whole worldview has has just been changed? Right, so he uh, um, in a subtle way addresses that. It determined the purpose, and according to the purpose, ordained for its object matter, form, force, and dimensions. It spake vayhichen, and it was as it is. Infinitesimally small or infinitely great, all was created by the word of God, determined by his will, formed by his finger. All the forces which, forces which thou seest working in everything, and all the laws according to which they work, and which thou noticest and admirest, from the force and the law, in obedience to which a stone falls or a seed of corn grows into a plant, to the force and the law in accordance with which the planets move in their orbits, or thy intellect expands, to God, the universal force, they all belong. His word prevails in every law. Now notice again this great throng of beings. Though separated and distinguished by peculiar construction and different purposes, yet united in one great harmonious system, each working in its own place, its own time, and according to its own measure of force none interfering with the other, each bearing the all and born by the all. Who is it that has harmonized all these opposites and united the countless into the all? It is the same all one who has established harmony between light and darkness, between life and death. As his love supplies matter and force to work, so also does the finger of his justice point limitation, goal, and measure. Harmonizer of contrasts is his name. And everything which he created, formed, and arranged, Vayivarech Elohim, he also blessed with the blessing of permanence and development. Not only all was through him, all is through him. All right, what, what more did we learn about his view of God in that next passage? It's an ongoing, continual creation involvement rather than a, to bring it, rather than a kind of clockwork approach. It's not the, the continued existence of creation is an active decision by God rather than merely a passive. So God, you're saying, in Hirsch's view, is directly involved in the ongoing functioning of the cosmos, yeah. or the world? Yeah. 
Okay, good. So uh, I think you're I think you're right about that, uh, right? So uh, not only all was through him, all is through him, right? Um, it wasn't just a clockmaker God, right? This is a God who not only created the world but is still involved in the world. Yeah, maintains the harmony. Maintaining the harmony, right? Because you know, at any point in time, something could go awry. Mm-hmm. You know, something anything can happen. You know, the moon could suddenly explode. You know, I mean, uh, you know, there's there's so many different things that could go in the wrong direction that would end up basically making our existence impossible. Uh, and yet, you know, they all they all stay in balance. They all stay harmonized. And I mean, everything has its purpose, right? I mean, vegetation has its own means of producing oxygen. Oxygen is then utilized, you know, by other organisms to 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 support its life, which then, you know, produces carbon dioxide, which goes back to the vegetation. There's there's this there's this balance and coordination, you know, between all these separate entities that gives you the sense that there is a whole unity, you know, within the system, much like the way, you know, a, a healthy human body. I mean, so it's very much like an organism, you know, that the, that the universe is like an organism with all these different organs that are all interacting with each other, all doing their thing to keep the whole thing alive. Right. Um, so, uh, so if that's the case, is there a separation between God and the world? No. There's no, no separation between God and the world in person's no. view. Right. So, I mean, it's, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, you, you using Hirsch's own metaphor from the beginning, right? Um, an artist is not usually uh, continually directly involved in his or her artwork, right? Um, so it's uh, so there's a um, uh, you know, either because all metaphors um, are imperfect, right? And we're talking about something that's inherently indescribable. Um, here's a way in which that metaphor breaks down. Um, but I, I can't think of another example where the artist, even though you can see, sense the presence of the artist maybe within the artwork, um, it's not necessarily the artist who's continually uh, pulling the strings of the artwork and making the artwork continue to happen in harmony. Yeah. Well, he Here. says something very interesting. He says, each bearing the all and born by the all. Mm-hmm. Right? Those are two really separate things, right? I mean... Um, 
what is, you know, a creator has to be outside its creation, right? I mean, it right. born by the all, right? Uh -huh. Given, you know, the, the, the creator gives birth to it, but yet, it, you know, the, the creator is not separate from it. It's the creator's engaged in it, in, mm -hmm. in, in, in its moment-to-moment -moment operation. Right. So there's really two elements to it, right? One is the being outside, and the other is being inside. So that God, God simultaneous, simultaneously is out there and in here. Here's another question I have about this. Okay, so if God is uh, perpetually in here, right? Is uh, is is uh, um, uh, uh, operating the system, running the system, continually present in the system? Um, how do you account for uh, evil? How do you account for suffering? How do you account for tragedy? Okay, do you even take humans out of the equation, right? Uh, how, you know, you still have uh, you still have lions eating gazelles and think of his justice. In Hirsch's view, death is a death and decay are a critical part for whatever reason of the world that God has chosen to create. The finger of his justice point limitation. It's it's a necessary limitation. Or it's a yeah. chosen limitation by God. In his eminence, in his aspect of justice, that this be a feature of the world. Well, right, but if it's a if it's a choice that God makes, right, then it then it's a then it's a moral choice, right? So well, actually, not assuming morality is a, is a phrase that one should be applying to God. Okay. Right, but it, oh, that, that's fair. But if if you if what you want to say is that that it's a limitation God imposed on the world. Yes. You're you're saying that God had a particular reason for imposing that limitation on the world. And justice and, seems to be the reason. Right. So what what does that mean? What is what is the meaning of justice there? Because justice sounds to me like a moral quality. Well, so I think justice here probably we're talking about something in the justice here is something in the same framework as balance. That life by death Harmony, tradition yeah. is is balanced must be balanced by death. Right. right. In now, I mean, that's I mean, the challenge is always like, since God created the world, he could have created the world in some other way, but something about the nature of life, at least as it was created, right. requires death, requires the death. Right, although I'm not positive in, I mean, uh, if I were talking to her, she would probably say that God could have created the world in any way that he wanted. I'm not positive in reading this that that necessarily comes through. Like, it seems to me... It's established harmony between life and death. Right, right. So, presumably... I, I well, God could have created a world in which there was there was disharmony. Or right? could have established harmony between life and something else, potentially. Uh-huh. I don't know what the something else would be. Mm -hmm. okay. well, yeah, Gary, yeah. Think about light and dark, okay? I mean, dark is the absence of light, okay? Um, it, you know, if you didn't have darkness, there would only be light, right? And that light would presumably be unlimited. Right. It would be so bright, I mean, and so energetic that nothing else could exist. Mm -hmm. So evil, I mean, in a sense, right. is a necessary contraction of love, right? right. I mean, it's a, in order for existence to 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 be possible, right. there has to be a contraction of the good, right? To, to to so that there is a balance that is continuous. 
Right. Although when it, when I when I brought that up to uh, my high school students on Sunday, I sort of blew their minds because it was the first time they ever really encountered the possibility that evil was in some sense good. Because it, it, without without evil, you wouldn't have any way of understanding the good, uh, which which uh, which which is a sort of you know uh, mind bender. Uh, but there's also um, uh, what did I want to say about this? Um, I guess there's. There's, there's a couple of things. The first is, um, so I, I, I uh, for the time being, took human beings out of the equation, but human beings are not out of the equation, right? So, um, uh, uh, so if God is present and orchestrating all of creation, um, then, uh, then, then what does that mean uh, for, for us as part of that creation? Um, how do we have free will if God is uh, is 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 conducting the symphony? So I mean, uh, a lion's a mortal being too. Okay, so do we. But but, but but what Hirsch seems to be saying is that the lion, the lion only apparently has instincts, right? The lion is actually uh, um, operated by God. Well, I like, I, I mean, up to this point, I mean, the point at which we started talking, most of the people we're talking about is the context of purpose. Because he talks about everything being his work, but then in the examples of purpose, he has not yet touched on the animal life. Alright, so let's go on a little he's bit. With plants, he's only dealt with plants so far. That's. He said that they all were, they all are part of God's work. He talks about, he talks about, um, you talk about all, but once we're getting into the fishes, purpose, plants, fishes, birds, insects, all beasts. All of these are his. But once we start talking about purpose and mm-hmm. and object matter form, for so far at least, I feel like I've only read about in this section about purpose, only read about the animate and the plant. Okay. At least. Okay. I haven't seen a clear indication of whether or not. So God, so you're saying that there's a possibility in Hirsch's conception. That God, that God is working through inanimate objects and plants, but not, uh, but not like sentient creatures. At least not to the same degree of control, potentially. All right, let's go on a little bit more, and then what I want to do is uh, just take the last few minutes to to evaluate. Okay, um, then we're out of time. <coughs> and, and he who created, formed, blessed, and ordered Vainafash. Invisible as the soul in thy body, he withdrew from gaze and concealed, like the soul, in his creation. He continues to work, preserve, and develop, invisible. Uh, His work thou seest, uh, his formations thou admirest, his laws thou searchest out, his blessings thou enjoyest. But him, the creator, shaper, orderer, benefactor of the world, him thy mortal eye shall never behold. Therefore, when thou seest and wonderest, studiest and enjoyest, bend the knee and adore him, the only one who... By the way, he keeps on using this phrase like the all and the only one, which implies to me um, what, what we might call um, uh, like pantheism, right? That, uh, that everything is God, right? Well, and God is everything. Well, so I, I, I might disagree with that. I think it implies that God is a superset of the universe. That does not mean God is an identity. I'm not sure that I'm not sure what what superset means. So, all of the every, the entirety of the universe may be within God, 
But they, so if you're like, if you draw a Venn diagram, right. you could have a big so that's, circle that is God. That's what, that's what we would call uh, panentheism. Yes, and I, I'm not sure yeah. at this point that we, that we have evidence for pantheism as opposed to panentheism. Okay, fair enough. Um, so uh, anyway, the only one who created and formed, ordered and blessed and worshipped him and worship him as power, wisdom, justice and love, universal and eternal. Attribute to God all the offspring of forces, attribute to God all glory and power. If you are paying attention, that's part of the Friday night liturgy. Attribute to God the revelation of his name, bow down to him in raiment of the sanctuary. The voice of God is upon the waters. The almighty one of creation thunders this is all part of Psalm 29. God is upon the mighty floods. The voice of God is in, the voice of God is in every force. The voice of God is in all beauty. The voice of God breaketh the cedars. God shattereth the forests of Lebanon. He causeth them to skip like the full Lebanon and Syrian as the young Raim. The voice of God splitteth the flaming fire. The voice of God terrifieth the wilderness. God affrighteth the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of God maketh the gazelles give birth and strippeth bare the forest. And in the temple of his worship, his all proclaims revelation. Uh, Go on to the next page. He doeth great things though we notice not. Speaketh to the snow, be upon the earth. And thou rain, be the messenger of heaven. Verily the rain is the embassy of his power. Upon the hand of every man he imprinteth his seal, remembereth every member of his creation, gathereth the wild beasts in their lairs, that they rest in their hiding places. Storms come from hidden recesses, in its season icy coldness from the breath of God he causeth frost. I mean, all of this strikes me uh, of, uh, of, of direct divine involvement in the functioning of all aspects of creation. Um, and the broad watery expanse becometh firm. When also bright rays dispel the mists, he is it who scattereth the clouds by his light. He, cause of all causes. In wisdom creative, he changeth them that they fit their purpose. All is as he biddeth it for his world of men, for the earth, for instruction, for earth perfection, for love. We find him. Therefore one creator is. All else, everything which thou knowest, is the creation, the revelation of this only one. Everything is from him, and subject to him, through him created, existing, active. And this world, what may it be? We tread upon holy soil, my Benjamin. We live in a divine world. God's creature and servant is every being around us. Every force is God's messenger. Every portion of matter given it by God to be influenced, modified, and worked upon in accordance with God's omnipotent law. Everything serves God, each in its place, in its time, with the quantity of forces and means given it, fulfilling his word, contributing its share to the work of the universe, which he joins together to the whole perfect edifice. Everything serves God. Servants are they all, the storm wind, the lightning, the rain, and the snow. A servant is the worm which crawls at thy feet, the blade of grass which nods to thee on the way, the thunder which rolls majestic above thee, and the cool breeze which fans refreshment to thy fevered cheek. All serve the Lord. Okay. It's, it's, it's sort of repetitive from there. So let's let's take the last uh, uh, couple of minutes that we have and uh, uh, talk about our um, evaluation sheet. Um, 
So how would you rate Hirsch in terms of authenticity? How, how authentic do you feel he is to the Jewish tradition, as you know, know it and understand it? Yeah, why do you say that? Is he is he coherent? Is he, um, are, you know, logically sound, rationally sound, terms well uh, well well identified? Um, are there are there sort of internal contradictions or or contradictions with? Um, uh, yeah, how would you rate him in terms of coherence? articulation um, it, I'm not I'm not so clear on what he means and whether or not he contradicts himself right so um, uh, uh, you know it, it goes I think to Rebecca's point before um, that uh, that I'm not sure if uh, um, uh, if he's talking about God as an artist that painted an artwork and the artwork speaks to the glory of the creator of that artwork or if uh, or if he's talking about God actually, um, uh, you know, playing the orchestra, right? And God continually is playing the orchestra. He seems uh, like he's saying both things, but I'm not sure how you can say both things simultaneously. Um, so that uh, uh, strikes me as challenging. Um, there's another uh, coherence problem, I think, uh, with this, which is, um, uh, and this may be how I'm reading it and how I'm understanding it. I could be wrong about it, but I'm understanding what he's saying as um, God... Um, orchestrating uh, all aspects of of life, all elements of the cosmos are functions of God's will. Um, I have I have trouble understanding 
Um, uh, I have trouble understanding things like animal instinct in that system uh, unless they are actual uh, manifestations of the divine will, which maybe they are. Uh, and so therefore, every time a lion eats a gazelle, uh, that's God at work. But with human beings as part of creation, unless we are somehow separate from creation, which he might make that argument, um, then I have trouble accounting for how there is free will in this system. Right? Well, um, I, I say free will, I, I would free will in when we start talking about contemporaneity. Okay, so I'm let's sure go to there. You can't have a coherent school of thought that says there is no free will. Right. You could have a perfectly coherent <clears throat> school of thought that says, no, human beings aren't any different. Sure. God wills that I write you this letter. And <laughs> sure, fair enough. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't really articulate the role of yeah. I mean, the, the, in fairness to him, in fairness to him, letter four is about man, but uh, yeah. Because he says none has power or means for itself. Say that again? None has power or means for itself, which would seem to deny free will, right? I mean, if you're right. saying that none is able to actually make its own, you know, make its own decision of what to do right. on its own. <clears throat> right, and I mean, so, and, and to get to the coherence piece, if you were to read chapter four, it, uh, he seems to imply a belief in free will. I think he may even say it explicitly in there. Um, so I, 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 I'm, I have trouble uh, finding the coherence of that. In terms of contemporaneity, just to give another one that I that I find challenging with this. Um, uh, I, one would have to be very creative to account, I think, for evolution in his system. Um, because evolution uh, involves, uh, as far as we know, um, involves things like random mutation, right? Um, so, you know, so, the, so you would have to say, well, it's not really, it only is apparently random, God is dry, okay, so fine, right? But, I, but it, it, at least it's sort of on its surface, um, uh, I, I um, it, it's... Um, it's not a slam dunk for me well, as yeah. Any ailment in a person is a, a mutation, right? If you're right. Born blind, that's not an intention of normal cells forming in the. Well, right, right. So, right. So then, it, how do you account? How do you account for a perfect, right. harmonious artisan in a system where I could be, God forbid, born blind? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what about communal acceptance? How how well do you think? Um, uh, Jews would, you know, gravitate to uh, to what um, what Hirsch says. Are you talking about today with all the yeah. all the other things going on? Yeah, yeah. Do you think Do you think that Jews? Do you think that like if you if you if you took a group of a hundred Jews, would they buy it? You know, eight of them. Okay. That's a pretty good percentage of modern orthodoxy, like 8%. Yeah. It also relates to the issue of contemporaneity, because he, he wrote this in, in the 19th century, right, right. and a lot has changed right. in terms of technology, right. and in terms of man's ability to control nature. Um, you know, a lot of, there's a, a lot of things that are very different right. in terms of man's relationship to nature right. um, than they were at that time. Right. Right, I mean, you know, so uh, um, I, I, I wonder how Hirsch would grapple with global warming, right? Um, so, and I think that's really important. When I, when I was 
developing this class, I, I uh, study every week with uh, with Rabbi Asher from KBI, and and I was struggling finding um, a good um, uh, Orthodox theologian. As I I, I, I uh, promise, I would say this at the beginning of class, like why it's hard to the right, because to the right, with people who tend to um, accept the authority of tradition um, on uh, with more or less unexamined faith. There's not really need for theology. They don't really uh, encounter things like science as a challenge to uh, to uh, their worldview. So that's why there's not a lot of um, uh, of Orthodox theologians to the far right, right? Where you really only see Orthodox theologians um, are people who are encountering and grappling with modernity somewhere in the liberal end of Orthodoxy. Um, so uh, Hirsch is one. And so I asked him. I was like, I was like, I'm having trouble with this. How about Samson Raphael Hirsch? Like, do people still study him? And he's like, yeah, he's still in vogue. So, uh, so in terms of communal acceptance, and I hear actually, I mean, you can you talk to contemporary Orthodox rabbis, and their theology very often sounds very similar to what Hirsch is saying here. Um, now, again, you, I, I, the way I feel is I have contemporaneity challenges with that, right? But they don't necessarily. So, in terms of communal acceptance, it's a mixed bag. Well, yeah. uh, early in the previous century. Albert Einstein said it. There is life, it is either moving or it's in a static pattern. God is life, the, the, the eternal and complete force is light. Right. The absence of light is dark. But matter is simply light in patterns. Right. Right, so in Hirsch's view, um, like I don't know if we live in a dynamic universe like that. Um, like it's it, like Hirsch is is very mechanical, right? So even though Hirsch may not be like a watchmaker god, Hirsch's universe is very watch-like, right? It's very orderly and structured. It doesn't really count. You know, there's no expanding universe here. Um, there's uh, there's you know there's no melting ice caps and threatening of uh, ocean levels rising. I mean, so that's. I think, uh, you know, so uh, Hirsch obviously wasn't around for Einstein, and I don't know what that conversation would have looked like.